Okay, the reading is from Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Good morning. Um, Just before we uh, jump into this, um, uh, most of you probably know this already, but just to let you know, um, my scan results came back and they're clear, so uh, just thanking the Lord for that. Yeah, that's a woo. Yeah. So uh, you're stuck with me a little bit longer, it looks like. Um, although I'm still struggling with some of the side effects of, of recovery, um, those can last kind of up to a year before things kind of return to normal. So um, whilst the big stuff is, is gone, there's still a lot of little stuff kind of working through, even this morning, feeling just physically uh, working through some stuff. So, um, so yeah. Um, I just want to say thank you for your patience and uh, with me in this journey and this, uh, uh, through that and just being gone a lot and all those sorts of things. And, and then even just patience as I uh, kind of reintegrate back into things. Definitely overdid it this week and so probably need to uh, look at, at that. So, but just thank you. So many of you guys have been so supportive through that and, and have uh, supported me and my family um, very, very well. So I'm going to stop talking or I'll start crying. All right. So let's just jump into uh, where we were. Um, last week, if you remember, we kind of gave an overview and, and set up some things uh, as we look at some of Jesus's most famous teaching. Um, some people describe the Sermon on the Mount as a description of all of the Gospels and the Beatitudes as a, sorry, a summary of the Gospels and the Beatitudes as a summary of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and that could be probably true um, as we look at that. But if you remember, we said last week, Jesus is coming. Um, this is at the, at the beginning of his ministry. He comes, and really, um, Matthew is particularly writing to a Jewish context. Um, he's kind of going out of his way to point out some things that they probably pick up on that we might not. Um, but the thing that we said last week we wanted to see is that Jesus really comes fulfilling Moses and his ministry of revelation, that Jesus kind of comes as the new and better Moses. He's coming to fulfill um, all of these things, the roles that, that Moses did, going up a mountain, sitting down, teaching them. Um, and he, in, in a sense, he brings a new law um, uh, that we're looking at. 
um, a law of grace, um, a new covenant. So Jesus is this Messiah. He has this authority to teach. Um, And we really said that the Sermon on the Mount is this call to discipleship. He's calling people to walk the way of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as as Matthew uh, refers to it uh, in this way. And um, uh, this set apart, this holy people that God has always wanted for himself. Um, We also pointed out, and it'll be important for today as well, um, and so we'll look at it again a little bit later, the difference between moralism and morality. And uh, morality is a good thing. Um, Moralism is antithetical to the gospel and is a bad thing. Um, So moralism, a sense, is I'm going to, if I do these things, then God will bless me. It's essentially a gospel of works and not of grace. Um, And morality, on the other hand, is actually the difference between right and wrong, what is good, what is bad. Um, And obviously, um, uh, we look to the scriptures uh, to determine those things. Um, And we also said that the Sermon on the Mount isn't just a sermon, and this is important for us again today as we really start to dig into it, it's a silhouette. It's a silhouette of the Savior. It's a silhouette of Jesus. Um, And especially this um, section that we'll look at this week and next week, we're only going to look at that uh, through verse 6 this week, uh, the first four. Um, Really, this should be a description of God's people, um, but it certainly is a description of Jesus. And uh, we'll look at some examples of that as we move through that. Um, and so let's jump in. We, we get this section that's been um, titled The Beatitudes because it starts with this word. They all start with this uh, um, word blessed. And so what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be blessed? If I were to ask you what, what does a blessed life look like, or if you ask most people what a blessed life look like, what do you think their answer would be? Think about it for a second. Uh, if you just ask the average person on the street, what is a blessed life? What do you think they would tell you? Give me some answers. Wealthy, Wealthy? yeah, okay. A blessed life certainly uh, has me stacking some cash. What else? You're healthy? Yeah, surely if I'm blessed, I don't get cancer, right? That, inco- that pretty much covers everything, right? <laughs> I mean, as long as I'm healthy enough to spend all the money in my bank account, um, then that, I can really kind of buy the life that I want, and I'm healthy enough to enjoy it, uh, right? And there, there are preachers that talk that way. It's this false gospel we call the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel because it is those two things. It kind of sum up what the average person thinks is a blessed life. And so when we look at this, Jesus is going to come out and say, blessed are those who are Poor, and you're like, but wait a second, uh, are what? Surely that should be blessed to those who are rich. So Jesus is already starting to turn over some tables in our mind of what we think is blessed. Now we have to do some work here real quickly because the this is a different word um, that we've translated into into blessed, and I'm not going to bore you with all the Greek and Hebrew and all of that sort of stuff, um, but. It can be used a couple different ways, right? When we think of blessed, it's, it's um, we ask the Lord to bless the sick, right? And that, there's nothing wrong with that because we want the Lord to heal them. Nothing wrong with asking God to heal people, right? Bless the sick. And so is this the way that God is using, the, is this the way, is this what this word means? Um, not, not really. There's another way that it can be used, um, which means um, it's not part of a wish, or to invoke a blessing, 
Rather, they recognize the existing state of good fortune. It's recognizing an, an existing state of good fortune or someone who is already um, in a state of blessedness, if you will. And so it's important um, as we start to see Jesus that we don't see Jesus as some kind of vending machine, right? If I do this, put in the right amount of money, then I get this. That's not, this isn't a sense of blessings and curses that Jesus gives. It's, it's not a blessing in that, it, that's not what it means, right? That's not the gospel. The blessings affirm a quality of spirituality that is already present. Um, and so even the word for could be better translated because. So blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's all, theirs is already the kingdom of heaven. It's not because they're going to get it. If you are poor in spirit, then someday Jesus will give you this. It's they're already in that present state. So blessed can mean happy, uh, or probably a better word even is flourishing. So flourishing are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not that if you are poor in spirit, then Jesus if you're poor in spirit enough, then Jesus will give you the, the, the kingdom of heaven. It's no, those that, are, those that already have the kingdom in heaven are poor in spirit. So Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into the way of being in the world that will result in their true happiness and their full flourishing in this age and in the age to come. The Beatitudes are Jesus' answer to the question of human happiness, right? It's, a, it's an answer given in a series of promises and challenges to us. So he's not some kind of mystic guru that's trying to disguise things. He's being pretty straightforward. And so before we look at the first four Beatitudes, I want us to see the connection and the continuity of Jesus and the Old Testament prophets, um, particularly Isaiah, because it's going to bring out a lot of richness in this, um, and I think it'll help us hear things the way that Jesus' hearers would have heard them, um, and that's going to help us understand how we need to hear it um, today as well. Um, a, a lot of times we want to maybe just kind of, let's just, I don't understand the Old Testament. It's too complicated, right? I don't understand it. Let's just kind of chop that bit off and just focus on the New Testament. Let's just get to the stuff that I understand. Um, but Jesus doesn't allow that. Um, if you look at the way that Jesus looks at Scripture or the way that Jesus uses Scripture, um, he's constantly referring to the Old Testament. He's constantly referring to the prophets. He's constantly quoting them, as we'll even see here this morning. Um, and so it's important for us that we look at the Scripture as a whole. Um, and Isaiah is a very important prophet um, with Jesus in the book of Matthew especially. So when we talk about Jesus coming and fulfilling things, remember the Jews were waiting for a Messiah, someone who would come and fulfill all the promises um, that God had given to them. And so if you have your Bible, um, turn to um, Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. We're going to see here that Jesus isn't just plucking stuff out of the air. Um, he's building on the Old Testament prophets. He's fulfilling them. And then he's calling us 
um, to follow in his way. So the very first words of Isaiah 61, and this is titled the year of the Lord's favor, say this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the, what? To the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to open the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to, to comfort all who mourn. Now, the, this is familiar, isn't it? Those who poor, those who are mourning, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. You see the themes that are happening here. Jesus is actually quoting from and fulfilling um, Isaiah chapter 61. Flip back over to the New Testament in Luke chapter 4. Um, this is Luke's account of Jesus, uh, the early days of him starting his ministry. This section um, in, in verse um, 16 is, is Jesus beginning his ministry. So look at verse 16. It says, And he came to Nazareth, Jesus, uh, where he'd been brought up. And as was custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. That's what we just read. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The, year, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been, what? Fulfilled. Fulfilled. It is Jesus who is coming to proclaim good news to the poor. And so when then we um, look at, at Matthew, um, what is Jesus doing? If we go back to Matthew chapter 5, and he's, he gathers this crowd. They're all seated around him. He opens his mouth, and he begins to teach them. He's not quoting directly from Isaiah, but what it, he's doing is building on and, and fulfilling the Old Testament prophets. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So Christianity isn't just a set of doctrines that are added on to Judaism, but it is a revelation of God himself in a person. God has been revealing himself um, all through the Old Testament, through the prophets, through the teachers, and now he is coming to fulfill those things and reveal himself in a person, Jesus. And here Jesus gives us a way of flourishing in the world, but we have to follow Jesus. This is how Jesus actually lives and acts. And so we expect Jesus to model it himself, right? If this is the way of the kingdom of God, he's coming to fulfill that, then surely Jesus himself would model that. We don't have time today to look at all these things, but if you want to write them down, um, feel free. This is just in the book of Matthew. Jesus is humble and poor in spirit in chapter 11 and chapter 21. He mourns and he grieves in chapter 23, um, not for his own sin, as we'll get to this, but for the sin of others. He's, he's weeping over Jerusalem that they would turn from their ways. 
He hungers and thirsts for God's kingdom to uh, manifest itself in chapter 9. He's pure in heart in chapter 4. He shows mercy in chapter 12, 14, 15, and 20. He brings peace in chapter 28. Do you understand that when we say this isn't just a sermon? This is a picture of Jesus. It's a silhouette of our Savior. And it's a path that we follow, Jesus, that leads to a life of flourishing in this life and the next. And that's important. Because we don't get everything in this life. Some of our reward is in the next. Um, And that was true for all of the Old Testament heroes that we have. They knew, looking ahead, that they weren't going to get everything in this life. Moses knew he wasn't going to get everything in this life. That his reward, um, some of them were to come. So let's look at these um, four Beatitudes that we'll, we'll start off with. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or, or flourishing are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, so who are the poor? Um, this isn't necessarily just this. So, like Isaiah, the poor are um, the humble and the pious who seek God. Luke just says, Luke in his um, account just says, blessed are the poor. But he's, he's assuming that his hearers understand. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the way that the prophets would talk. Very rarely does Isaiah refer to the poor as those who are lacking food and hungry. The homeless. When he refers to the poor, it is, he means the humble um, who are holy and who are seeking after God, not the perfect, right? Um, Isaiah 66.2 says this, All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. Who? He who is, um, some... Um, Translations will say, he who is poor and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, that doesn't mean that if, you ha- that if you're wealthy, that you're like, well, I have to give up all my money then. No, he means those who are poor in spirit. And so your translation, like mine, probably says, he who is humble and contrite in spirit. Someone who understands his poverty of spirit, his need. And so this is what poor is. It's poor in spirit. is a recognition of my spiritual poverty. That spiritually I have no resources of my own. I'm lacking the resources spiritually to come to God. And that's what it is. It's recognizing our need. It's, it's a humbling of that. And it is humbling, isn't it? No one wants to admit our need. None of us want to say, you know what, I don't have the resources for that, right? Imagine going to a restaurant and then the bill comes and you're like... I, don't, I, don't, I can't actually pay for this. That's pretty humbling, isn't it? To go up and go, you know what? I actually don't have enough money for this. Sorry. Do you have any dishes I could do in the back? Or... Right? But this is what this is. It's humbling. None of us like to have to admit our neediness. We don't have the resources, our own strength to do that. I've been confronted with that um, in, in physical ways uh, because of, of where I'm at with my health. Um, Sue and I were flying to California, and I literally couldn't put my suitcase in the overhead compartment. Sue had to do it for me. My wife had more strength than I did to, to lift something overhead, and I had to just sit down, and, and man, that wasn't a good feeling at all. 
to, to go, man, I just, I didn't have the resources to do so, something so simple that I've done a hundred times before. We don't like to be needy. We don't like to be sick. We don't like to be poor. But this is what Jesus comes and says, isn't it? He says this in Mark 2, 17. Um, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, he doesn't mean that there's a, there's a category of people called righteous that, that are so righteous that they're in and don't need Jesus. He's referring to people who think they're so righteous they don't need Jesus. These are the people who are not poor in spirit. Jesus says, those aren't the people that I came for. Um, well, they are, but they'll have to see their need. It's the sick that need the physician. It wasn't until I started to see the symptoms of my cancer that I went to the doctor. I had to admit that I was sick and needed help. I couldn't do it on my own. And this is, what, this is who the poor are. It's admitting that we are poor, that we don't have the spiritual resources in and of ourselves. It's an admitting that we need that to come from outside of us. And it's those people then who, what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One of the old Syriac translations says it this way, happy it is for the poor in spirit that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How do you inherit the kingdom of heaven? The very first step is admitting that you don't have the resources in and of yourself to get it. That someone else is going to have to intervene. Second one we'll look at then is blessed are those who mourn, for they are comforted. Mourning. None of us, again, anybody here love to mourn? <laughs> don't like to be poor. Now I have to mourn. And this isn't mourning in this, necessarily in the sense of grieving someone who has died. That's not what he's necessarily speaking of. Do you remember in our Ecclesiastes series, uh, even Solomon said, what, it's better to go into the house of mourning than it is to go to a party. Why? Because it's in the house of mourning that we're confronted with the important things of life. So I think there's a few things here that we could look at when we think of mourning, those that mourn, as we see from the scripture. Um, the first thing that we, that we can mourn is suffering. Jesus, over and over again, mourned, grieved, was moved in compassion to suffering that he saw around him, all right? Um, one quote that I read this week said, we know little about the depths of human spirit until we endure suffering. Pain rearranges our priorities. Those who mourn are those who actually connect with it. They're mourning the suffering that they see around them. Do we, like Jesus, mourn the suffering of others? Because there is a category of people who are so self-contained. They don't have need. They're not poor in spirit. That the suffering around them, one, if they even see it, doesn't really bother them. Because it's not their suffering. But do we mourn, as Jesus did, the suffering 
of the world around us. Secondly, we mourn injustice. Do we, do we mourn when people are treated unjustly? Does it bother us? Does it move us in spirit? Or do we harden our skin so that we don't have to feel or see the pain and injustice of others? But all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets um, would warn against that. Jesus, over and over again, mourns injustice and often steps in. And then third thing that that we should mourn is our own sin. And this is probably the most important of that, right? You see how these start to build on each other? I don't think the the order in which Jesus uh, puts these is an accident. We'll look at more of that next week as we finish them. Those that are poor in spirit, who recognize their need, also recognize their own sinfulness, and it bothers them. The failure to love and obey God, our failure to love our neighbors as we should, should grieve those. It should grieve us as it grieves the heart of Christ. It should grieve the heart of the Christian. And what do we receive from that morning? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. God comes and he comforts such people. In the depths of our soul, he comes. He gives us assurance that these things will be made right in the end. We know that suffering will come to an end. We know that injustice will come to an end. That God will come once again and put the world to rights. And we know that, that our sin um, has been taken care of in, in one sense, in the now, right? Jesus is taking care of our sin so that we can stand righteous before God. We talked about that last week. But also that our sin will come to an end. Praise God. That's one of the, what, it's one, of the, the one things that I can't wait about the, the new heaven and earth is that, I, that I'll just stop being sinful, <laughs> Right? Imagine what our relationships will be like when there's not sin in them. Imagine what our economy would be like if there wasn't sin entangled in it. Imagine what government would be like. Well, we could just stop right there and imagine that. But imagine what government would be like if it were a a pure government. And so we mourn those things, but we're also comforted by the fact that God will come and make all those things right. And that we as Christians can often um, uh, work against suffering. We can work against injustice in the now. We can actually do something about that in the now because the kingdom is one of now and not yet, isn't it? Jesus has said that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's now, but it hasn't come in its full fruition. And so we're comforted in the now, but we're also comforted um, in the ultimate when Jesus comes again. The third one, then, as we look at is, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Okay, what does this mean? Who are the meek? Again, I'm not sure these are things that we really aspire to. If you're writing out a list, these probably are not our aspirations. It's, meek's a weird word, right? We don't use it a lot. We don't use that word, meek. I think we often, not just because it rhymes, but I think we often equate it with just being weak. Someone who's meek is, is just kind of weak. They're timid. 
They probably have one of those handshakes that are just like a wee floppy fish handshake, you know. Probably don't have a strong voice. Just a little meek person. That's not, that's not what it means at all. It's actually the opposite. Meekness is power that's under control. Uh, it's power, but it's, it's controlled power. Um, think of like a stallion, a wild horse, right? Just bucking around, out of control. I mean, those things are powerful animals if you stay, stood next to them. Um, they're, they're bigger than us. They're, I mean, they're kind of scary. You wouldn't want to be a, a, around um, that kind of a horse just going crazy like that. But if you've ever been to, say, like the changing of the guard or, you know, any kind of royal, whatever, there's a lot of horses involved in that. Um, but those horses are all under control. They, they do exactly what the rider has them do. They go exactly where they're meant to go. They stop when they're meant to stop. They, I mean, they're completely under control. And that's really a good picture of meekness. Power, I mean, that stallion could just decide to do its own thing. Get off me. I don't, right? The, the rider really doesn't have control if the animal didn't want him to. He's been trained that way. But at any time, one of those stallions could just be like, forget this, I'm done. And embarrass the queen and all, I don't know what they do. But. A lot of horses involved. The meek use the measuring stick of the justice of God. And then with that standard, identify injustice and have a righteous act, uh, anger and action toward that. It's not worldly power. They use the measuring stick of, of God's righteousness, of God's justice. Those who use that divine standard of justice, those are the meek who struggle for God's justice and thereby inherit the earth. What does he mean by inherit the earth? Again, the um, early translations really have inherit the land. Um, and that would have been a pro- probably more appropriate for the listeners at that time, right? If you change that, those will inherit the land. And then if you were a Jewish person thinking, what would, what would you go to? What would your mind go to? What kind of land? The promised land, right? The land that they were, the land that they were promised. Um, and that is true. Um, but then as Jesus comes, as the... Um, redemptive story expands out to not just Jews, but to Gentiles. We see the new heavens, we see the new earth. Um, this gets expanded out to the meek will inherit not just this little plot of land in the Middle East somewhere. We get the whole thing. We get the whole thing. Because all of it belongs to Christ. And our fourth one then. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Um, again, these are words rooted in physical needs to describe our spiritual uh, realities. So, have you ever been really thirsty? I'm going to take a drink to answer that while you think about that. That is literally the reality that I live in moment by moment right now. Um, because of the radiation treatment, uh, my saliva glands uh, basically don't work right now. Um, pray that they come back. Um, and so my mouth gets really dry really quickly. Um, and when I wake up uh, in the middle of the night, there is zero moisture. Um, I can't, 
you know, what you can kind of do to get things going again. I can't do that. It's just all sand um, in there. That's what it feels like. And so I always have water by my bed, well, wherever I go at the moment. It's just this feeling of just constant thirstiness. And it doesn't take long to be situation of thirstiness. It's, a, it's uncomfortable. Um, it doesn't feel good. You can't eat um, that way because it just feel, your throat feels like sandpaper, just rubbing up against itself, trying to get food down with no moisture. Um, so you, when you're in that state of, of thirst, you want it to be quenched pretty soon, right? And this is the state of like thirst, I need this to be quenched, or hunger. Um, maybe you've been doing some fasting um, through this season of Lent. We know what it means to be hungry. And we use that kind of phrase all the time, man, I'm starving. And we're not really, by any stretch of the imagination. But we know that feeling, right? I want it, I want it to be satisfied. And Jesus uses this imagery for our physical needs to heighten our, our awareness to the spiritual realities that we have. The blessed are those who are hunger and, and thirsting, who are um, moving forward to. They're, they're not going to be, they're, they're those who continue at whatever cost in their journey towards a more perfect righteousness. Not satisfied with the state of righteousness that I'm, that I'm in or that I have. And I want to move towards a better one. It's this constant, relentless drive toward righteousness that characterizes the blessed or the flourishing. Um, look at Matthew 13. Um, Verses 44 to 46. Jesus is going to give us a picture, I think, that will help us out here. So if you look at Matthew 13, verses 44, um, this is Jesus um, talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, but he's using parables um, or stories to help us understand it. He uses two kind of back to back, and I think it'll help us. So verse 44, verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes, sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Right? He buys the field because he knows the treasure in the field is worth more than whatever he had to do to buy the field. And now he's improved his status. So he says, The kingdom of heaven is like the treasure that's hidden in the field. You'll go whatever cost to do that. But then he, then he says this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, it's easy to, to look at that at, at first and think Jesus has just said the same thing twice, uh, just use different stories. So the kingdom of God is like a treasure in a field and is like a pearl of great price. But that's not what he said. Look at, the, look at the second one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. So the second one, the kingdom of heaven 
is like the person who finds a pearl of great price and he goes and he sells everything that he has to buy it. So the kingdom of God are, are both of these things. It's both treasure, person who is hungering and thirsting after righteousness, who would sell everything to go and get it. Does that make sense? And so what do we mean by righteousness? It's not, the way that it's used here, righteousness isn't this absolute, it's a term that relationship. And every relationship makes claims on conduct, right? Every relationship has terms of agreement, whether they're um, stated or not stated. So in a marriage, we take vows, right? So those are kind of the stated part, but you also know there's some unstated uh, (laughs) uh, rules of agreement in a marriage of how we conduct ourselves. Even in friendships, right? We kind of have, there's claims of conduct in in that way. If you behave a certain way, it's probably going to impact our friendship. And we might not be friends if that continues. And your employment. And the satisfaction of these claims, um, which issue from the relationship and in which alone the relationship can um, continue or persist, is um, decided by the terms that Jesus uses for righteousness. And so... There's multifacets that we can look at. So let's look at these because some of these are going to help us to think of. When we say we're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, what do we mean by that? Well, let's look at a few of them. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn to Micah chapter 6. The first thing that righteousness can describe is the mighty acts of God to save. Um, So Micah, I'm sure you've been in that book kind of recently, all of us in Micah quite often. You're like, where is that again? Is that, where is that? That's one of those little ones at the very end of the the New Testament. So thank God for digital Bibles. Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. What does he say? Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, uh, Moab devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened um, from Shittim to Galal, that you might know, what? The righteous acts of the Lord. And so sometimes this word righteousness that we're searching after or that we're hungering for um, to see happen are mighty acts of the Lord to save. So that's one way we can think of righteousness. Um, Look at Isaiah chapter uh, 54. Isaiah 54. Another way that we can think about um, righteousness, verse 10 through 17, that we're going to look at here. Righteousness has to do with being declared righteous. So, verse 10, for the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in um, in, uh, antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of all these precious stones, right? Verse 13, and your children shall be taught um, by the Lord, 
and the great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established and shall be uh, far from oppression and you shall not fear and, and, uh, and from terror for it shall not come near you. So here he's describing righteousness in a covenantal kind of way. Righteousness um, has to do with being declared righteous. It doesn't mean that, um, that we're striving to be perfect, but it does mean that those who belong to God um, want, want to be the verdict of, of, of right. They want to have the verdict of righteous pronounced over them. So we hunger, we thirst for these things. Look in Job, verse 20, um, chapter 29. Um, verse 14. The way that it can be used is a uh, well. Um, righteousness is also uh, a human response to the verdict of, of being innocent or righteous, right? So we're declared righteous by God. And then we have a response to that, a human response. So Job 29, 14. I put on righteousness... And it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Okay, so he puts on righteousness. We would now know that's the righteousness of Christ. And then the response to that is, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. And so there's a human response to being declared righteous. We show mercy. There's compassion to the outcast, the oppressed, the weak, the orphan, and the widow. And then another way, last way we look at today um, is Isaiah chapter 32. The way that we can um, think about righteousness is connected to peace. So in Isaiah 32, Jesus, um, uh, the prophet will speak like this in verse 17. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. Well, thanks. That's pretty straightforward. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation and, and, and uh, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Verse 20, happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. How God treats us and being declared righteous. Righteousness is connected to peace. It results in peace. It's an effect of that. Then if we're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, right? It's peace. It's how we respond um, to God's verdict over us, that we will act then as righteous people. Showing mercy and compassion. These are the things that we're hungering and thirsting for. We're hungering and thirsting for God to act in ways that we can't, in his ways to save. We're hungering and thirsting for God to even declare us righteous in this state. And the answer to that is that it is God is the one who will satisfy I'm hungry and thirsting because I want to. I'm hungry and thirsting to act in a way of someone who's been declared righteous. That's my desire, right? So I want to essentially, I want to act like a Christian. But who then supplies that? 
It's God himself who enables us, right? We'll see in the New Testament, to even will and to act according to his way. It's God who satisfies us in this and and, and enables us. If righteousness is a relationship that brings peace, then only God can satisfy the longings for that righteousness. And in that, then the, the approval of other people doesn't really matter, does it? It's irrelevant because they're not the ones that can satisfy. We are not righteous to please other people, but to show gratitude to God and to maintain that And so we'll look at the, the rest of them um, later. But just as we've said last week and this morning, this isn't, okay, I have to do these things to obtain these things. This is a picture of those who have already obtained those things, those who have already been declared righteous. That's a picture of those that are already walking the way of Jesus. And so we have to then, really, it begs the question, we have to stop and ask ourselves, if I'm a Christian, does this describe me? Does it describe me? Am I the one that could be said to hunger and to thirst after righteousness? Am I really looking for God to satisfy me, or am I looking to other things? Am I meek? Not weak, but am I measuring things in the same way that God would measure them? And then trying to act upon that. That's power under control, but not power as the world has it. Not injustice. Does that describe me? Do I mourn over the suffering I see around me, over the injustice in the world? And maybe most importantly, so that we're not a Pharisee, our own sin. Does my sin bother me? Do I mourn over that? Or do I just treat it lightly? Ah, messed up again, no biggie. Or is it desire to actually see that, that's a, that it offends God, that it, it bothers him? So much so that he gave his son to pay for those things. And so as we look to the cross, we should mourn over that. And not in a not in a way that beats us down, but in a way that actually drives us to the cross once again. In a way that drives us to the table once again. Am I poor in spirit? Do I often confess that I need, I need Jesus? We sing that song, right? I need thee. The old school version is I need thee every hour. But it's true. Do we see and confess our need for Jesus? One of the ways that we do that, obviously, is by coming to the table to remember what he's done for us. And so maybe this morning we come, because we can come to the table in different ways, can't we? Maybe this morning we come poor in spirit, recognizing our need once again. Maybe this morning we come mourning, the fact that this even had to take place, that Jesus had to die, that his body had to be broken for me, that his blood had to be shed for me. But even as we take then this physical meal, one that would satisfy hunger and thirst, we realize that it is God who satisfies, and we rejoice in that. Let's pray.
Father, thank you isn't, um, are not words that are enough, um, that you have made a way for us um, that we couldn't make on our own. And so we just confess again that uh, we need you. Spirit, we don't have the resources in and of ourselves that we never have, um, and that's why you had to send your son. And so, Father, we thank you for that um, again. We thank you that we can actually be um, blessed, that we can be happy, that we can live lives that are flourishing um, if we'll actually walk this path. And so, Father, help us once again, enable us once again. Satisfy us and comfort us once again um, and remind us that we, we have, that we are, um, that we have inherited the kingdom of heaven. Um, that all of what we need now and in the future that you've supplied for us. And so we come thanking you once again. Amen.